Hey everybody, this is David Dylan Thomas, and I uh, just wanted to um, introduce the next episode of uh, Future of Content. Um, so this is part two. Uh, in part one, we basically went over this idea that it's really cheap now to uh, produce content cheaper than it's ever been, but it's still really hard to make money off of it. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about in part two was this idea that if you redistribute the risk right involved in making content, it actually kind of changes the game for a lot of different you know conventions around how we're used to paying for content or like rights management and stuff like that, and that kind of gets us closer to that you know dream of being able to make money off of it. So, in any case, um, enjoy this part too. And one sort of uh, error I made when I was giving the talk, you're gonna hear me bring up the phrase two hundred thousand dollars, as in like how much you know a corporation might put up for a piece of entertainment, and what I meant to say was 200 millions because I was thinking about big blockbuster movies which do you know cost in that neighborhood these days um, but for whatever reason I said 200,000 so when you hear 200,000 just think 200 million or pretend I'm talking about something that isn't a movie uh, anyway uh, enjoy part two of the future of content thanks so how do we do that how do we get to the point where I'm sustainably actually making this content over time lesson two the redistribution of risk changes everything. Here's what I mean. This is the old way. And by the old way, I mean a way that's still extremely common, but it's the old way, the traditional way of producing content, the relationship between the person making the content, the person consuming the content, and the people who finance it. So you would have a large corporation, some centralized risk taker, a Disney, a Capitol Records, and they would commission the artist to produce something that say, here's a lot of money, Maybe here's a little bit on the back end, make this thing. But we are paying for it. We are putting up the financial risk that what you create will be something we can sell. Now, because they assume all that risk, they get to keep control. So final cut, right? If I'm going to spend $200,000 on this thing, you bet I'm going to keep final cut. Uh, gatekeeping. If I'm going to spend that much money on this thing, I decide who's going to be a star. I decide who's going to direct this. I decide who gets to be a writer and who doesn't get to be a writer. Makes perfect sense, right? And then on the distribution side, the relationship with the audience, yeah, I'm gonna control the pricing. I'm gonna decide how much a ticket's gonna cost. I'm gonna decide how much a download's gonna cost. And in terms of, you know, digital rights management, of course, I just spent $200,000 promoting this thing, another $200,000 making it. Yeah, I'm gonna make sure that you don't copy any of that. I'm gonna sue you when you put Mickey Mouse on a face cake, true story. And I kind of sympathize, right? That's a lot of money to put up. If I actually myself personally put up that much money, I'd kind of be very persnickety about these things. But here's where things get weird, right? We now live in a world where instead of a centralized studio saying, here's a bunch of money that I'm going to put up for risk, you have platforms where a whole bunch of you and a whole bunch of me can get together and say, do you want to make something, right? Now, because that risk is distributed across 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people, no one person gets to be persnickety about, oh, digital rights management. So on the artist end, right, what that starts to look like, and what I'm talking about here are platforms like Kickstarter, where you can crowdfund for a particular work of art or for a particular production, right? What that looks like from the artist end is I get to keep Final Cut because when I put up my Kickstarter, I said, this is what I want to make. Are you in or are you out? We've already agreed to that, right? We don't have to come back later and say, mm, I don't like the way you cut that scene. And then in terms of rights management, 
I can be more flexible about that. Because, again, I don't have to worry about protecting my investment because the money's already spent. You've already agreed, yeah, we're going to make this thing. The money's there to do it. We do it. That means I can be a little more loose about that and say, you know what, instead of retaining all the rights for myself, I'm going to actually say you can uh, redistribute this um, as long as you accredit me. Or you can even remix this if you want, you know, as long as you don't gain from it financially. I can be much more flexible. I can have a volume knob on that copyright. And then from the audience end, all, their free all sorts of other freedoms start to pop up. Uh, pricing, right? I can decide how much I pay. And curiously enough, it's not necessarily zero. So if it's a Kickstarter, then here's all this different pay what you want, essentially, rates. And even if it's a finished work, this was an interesting case um, when uh, Radiohead, back in the day at this point, um, released the In Rainbows album. They did not have a price tag. They had a donate button. And it was donate what you want. There was no minimum donation. Now, can anyone guess, given that anyone could get that album for free, does anyone want to guess what the average price of the album was? That's exactly right. <laughs> you have an innate sense of content. Um, yes, $5, which means that some people, without any obligation at all, felt, actually, this is worth more than $5, right? Because five was the median. There were people who gave way more than that. So this gets into buying versus tipping, which we'll get a little more into later. But it's this idea that uh, the audience now gets to have some say in how much things cost, right? And then gatekeeping, right? It's no longer about this studio is going to say yes or no to this actor because of how they perform in foreign markets. No, it's the audience gets to decide, oh, we actually want this person to be a star. And here's what I mean by that. Does anyone know who this is? Okay, one of these days I'm going to give this talk and someone's going to know who this is. Um, I'm going to be like, oh my God. Okay, is it any clearer now who this is? So... You may recognize the other two people in this photo. That's Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. And this is from a movie called The Heat, which came out a little while ago. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Uh, the person they are suspending uh, is a guy named Spoken Reasons. He's a comedian. And this is a guy who could not get booked at nightclubs, right? Could not get a gig. So he decided, I'm going to simply put my comedy on YouTube. And he did this over and over and over again. And over the course of about five years, he built up a following of about a million people, right? A million subscribers to his YouTube channel. Now this got him on the radar of YouTube, who very wisely has started to get into the business of talent recognition, right? They notice when somebody's getting that kind of heat. That then put him on the, YouTube then put him on the radar of Paul Feig, the director of this movie, and that's how he got there. Now, Sandra Bullock got there, and Mrs. McCarthy got there the traditional way. Like, they worked their asses off and made it through all these, you know, uh, ranks, but they had to have a studio basically approve, approve of their existence. Spoken Reasons got there because a million subscribers on YouTube said he should be there. Now, here's the thing. Let's have some fun with math. He has, at this point, 1.8 million subscribers on YouTube. Let's say only 5% of them say, I will give you $1 a month. That's it. He clears over a million dollars a year. And I can guarantee you, he did not make a million dollars working on the heat. He's actually in a better position out in YouTube land than he is in Hollywood. 
But this is what I mean when I say we now get to decide. We get to be the gatekeepers of who is a star and who is not. So this is a quote from the uh, great John Paxton, who uh, all of you I'm sure know is this dude I know on Facebook. And um, he said, the era of media barons and gatekeepers will, from a wider perspective, appear to be a weird anomaly, an off period in the conversation between artist and audience. And if you're thinking about it, that's true. There was a time when all art was local, right? There was a time when we created stuff and shared stuff in very small enclaves. It is only a recent phenomenon that we figured out how to industrialize art, how to industrialize cinema in a way that required big machinery and that you would then sell and that you would need to have a media baron to say, here it is, I'm gonna mass produce it and spread it out to you. And in a weird way, these technologies start to bring us back uh, to a very old way of thinking about content. So here's another weird thing you get to do when that happens. So is anyone here familiar with um, Hit Record Joe? Or just called Hit Record now, right? So what this is, and this is uh, sort of run by Joe Gordon Leverett, um, an actor who some of you may know. And what it is is that Joe and the folks at Hit Record will put out a theme, right? And that theme might be, you know, motherhood or spring. And people will start submitting ideas for stories or ideas around that. And they'll say, great, here's a really cool story we want to tell about spring. Um, and we're going to need um, some uh, video shot for that. We're going to need some artwork. We're going to need some costumes. We're going to need some music. And lots and lots and lots and lots of people will contribute those things. And one central director will start pick and choose and put together that collage into one seamless work, which works unbelievably well, but you'll have one piece of work, a, a, a film, a, a book, something that has thousands, literally thousands of contributors. And here's the thing. They take one piece of content, right? But the rights to that are distributed. So if you contributed a song to that video, you get to keep the rights to the song. But the video itself, the final work, that copyright belongs to hit record. Similarly, the profits from that are split 50-50. 50% goes to hit record. The other 50% gets distributed among everybody who contributed. Now, incredibly, this is a profitable business. It's not just a profitable business. The work is so good that it's been nominated for two Emmys, and it's still growing. You also get to collaborate on things like fact-checking. So the movie The Martian is based on a novel, which is itself based on a blog. Um, and uh, the guy who put this together basically would release essentially a chapter per blog post, just a little bit of blog post about this crazy story he had about a guy who gets stuck on Mars. And he was a bit of a science geek, so he'd put in some pretty cool science facts along the way. What he found as he went was that people would start, you know, saying, hey, this is really cool, but you didn't quite get that bit of chemistry right. It actually should be like this. When he turned that blog into an ebook, he got to fix all of that stuff based on the fact checking of basically commenters who knew more than he did, right? So even these kind of basic functions of creating work can be crowdsourced effectively. You may know this gentleman, Joss Whedon, um, who, believe it or not, for a while was kind of a cult figure. Not many people knew who he was, but right after he uh, made The Avengers, which at the time was the third highest grossing film of all time, he posted this to a fan board, actually, called Whedonverse, that he occasionally pops into, and he said, uh, basically this was his thank you note to his fans after The Avengers came out. And he said, I have people in my life on this site in places I've yet to discover. 
that always made me feel the truth of success. An artist and an audience communicating. Communicating to the point of collaborating. It's this different way of thinking about the artist and the audience. And this brings us to our next lesson, which is that we're gonna redefine success and we're gonna do it over and over again. Cool, so that is all for part uh, two and we're gonna get to part three next week. Um, and that's, like I said, gonna be about how we um, redefine success. And it's uh, kind of interesting. One of the, my favorite things about this um, concept, about this talk is that um, we're used to thinking of success in a very specific way when it comes to entertainment and art, and um, I think that's going to change pretty radically um, over the next few years. Uh, so anyway, we'll get more into that next time uh, for the Future of Content podcast. Uh, this is David Dolan Thomas, and I uh, will see you soon.